Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Labor Know Your Rights podcast, brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. They can be found at www.nljsp.us. Hello, listeners. I'm happy to announce that we now have a toll-free number for our listeners to leave a comment or a question. Please dial one 625 8610. If you are outside of the U.S., Canada, or Caribbean, or if you want to make your recording using a voice recorder, please visit www.lifeonrecord.com slash podcast slash question mark EID equals E43B98. You can also visit the show notes to get the link there or our website and follow the link there. Do you know somebody that has a birthday, anniversary, or any other special occasion coming up? A great way to give them a wonderful gift is a meaningful audio keepsake of phoned in stories, memories, and well wishes from family and friends telling the recipient why they are so special. For more information, visit lifeonrecord.com. Great way to get a toll-free number so any of your friends and family can call in and leave these messages and you can get it recorded onto a keepsake for the person you're giving this to. Today, we will be discussing unions in America. Please go to the iTunes to rate us. This will help others find the podcast. This episode, I will be summarizing Gary Chasen's book, Unions in America, published in 2006. Unions, like all things, have evolved over time. First came the Guild, in which members of one type of industry joined together. The next evolution was the Union. Unfortunately, in the beginning, they didn't tend to last for long and could not withstand the employer's attacks on them, often legal attacks as unions were considered illegal. For example, in 1806, the journeyman cord winers of Philadelphia were found guilty of conspiracy of restraint of trade when they stroke over wages. Around the middle of the century, Massachusetts courts ruled that the unions were not part of a conspiracy of restraint of trade if their objectives were legal. This opened the door for other states to reconsider their actions in regards to unions. Unions formed covering typically a city or regional area as that was the area they could best economically affect at the time. By the mid-19th century, employers were fighting back, lowering wages by simplifying jobs so lower-skilled workers could do the job and by raising productivity. The Noble and Holy Order of the Knights of Labor formed in 1869 in Philadelphia. They were formed originally as a secret society so that employers could not fire them for being a member. They grew rapidly. By 1879, they had over 700,000 members. The Knights were originally a union of craftsmen, but eventually took members of all levels. They believed that the system of wages should be destroyed and that each employee should be their own master. The decline of the Knights started with an incident that they were not really part of, the Haymarket Square Massacre, which we've discussed before. Although this marked the beginning of the decline of the membership of the Knights, the biggest problem they faced was a lack of clear definition of their goals and what they stood for. By 1893, the membership was down to 75,000. The next evolution was a formation of the Union Federation. After the decline of the Knights started, there were issues of jurisdiction over which parts of the Knights could represent which type of worker. 
skilled, semi-skilled, and unskilled. Out of this dispute, the American Federation of Labor, the AFL, was formed. Gompers, the first president of the AFL, believed that affiliated unions should deal with improving work conditions in the current economic situation over some utopian idea. He assigned each affiliated union specific jurisdictions to recruit members of a specific type of work. At about this time, the AFL faced great opposition by players. We won't go into the details, but several long and severe strikes were faced with violence and employers hiring strike breakers like the Pinkertons. He then moves on to the Industrial Workers of the World, IWW, also known as Wobblies. They were formed in 1905 in Chicago by 43 unions. This union was very militaristic in nature and believed strikes over collective bargaining. They were an all-inclusive union which believed in one huge union versus dividing unions up by trade, region, or employer. Unions decline and resurgence between the wars. Union membership increased during the World War I because of low unemployment and the government wanting to avoid interruptions of production. Many union officers were on war production boards. After the war the 1920s, the union lost membership and power due to increased opposition by employers. Also, the employers tried a new tactic that seemed to work. They voluntarily gave out benefits to employees, such as vacation time pensions, health care, and more. As the 1920s turned to the 1930s, unions found their footing and membership increased. This was due to a change in who the unions were recruiting. This came about at the 1935 convention of the AFL. There had been arguments over who the union should represent. On one side, the AFL wanted their memberships to be for skilled trade members only. Those on the other side of the issue felt that unions should be open to all employees. This eventually led to one million members leaving the AFL to create a rival federation known as the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the CIO. The early 1930s brought about many changes in the laws governing labor. We've seen laws preventing the court from issuing court orders against most strikes and preventing court orders preventing the unions from doing any legal actions. Protecting employees' rights to organize along with the National Labor Relations Board, the NLRB, being formed under the National Labor Relations Act, the NLRA, FDR formed the National Industrial Recovery Act, the NIRA, which allowed employers the right to set wages and hours for their industry without facing the federal antitrust laws, but they had to recognize the employees' right to bargain collectively through unions of their own choosing. This led to a huge increase in union membership, but later the Supreme Court ruled the NIRA to be a violation of federal powers. But later that same year, the NLRA was passed, thus reestablishing the employee's right to collective bargaining through a union of their own choosing. At the start of World War II, unions promoted the cooperation with management they had before. In 1942, the mine workers went out on strike and the president ordered the mines to be taken over by the government and forced workers to return to work. During the war, strikes were uncommon and a clear sign that the unions were honoring their no-strike agreement. After the war, prices increases. Companies had made great money during the war and the unions tried to gain some of the wage 
increases in benefits that they didn't gain during the war. This set the mood that the labor movement had the upper hand and the legislature stepped in with the Taft-Hartley Act, which addressed the unfair labor practices of unions not bargaining in good faith, the right of employees not to join a union, exclusion of supervisors from the protected right to organize. It also gave the state the right to pass right-to-work laws prohibiting any collective agreement clauses requiring union membership as a condition of employment. Prior to the 1950s, unions went through a period of rating membership, organizing members who were already in another union. But in the 1950s, this settled down. Two major federations, the AFL and CIO, leaders passed away in the same year. The new leadership ended the period of rating. In 1955, the AFL and CIO merged into one organization and became the AFL-CIO. Although unions have always had a degree of corruption, it came to a head in the 1950s with Congress investigating the union movement. The committee found that several union officers, truckers, bakeries, and constructions were involved in corruption. This brought about the Labor Management Reporting and Disclosure Act, also known as the Lundrum Griffin Act. This act gave union members a bill of rights that included the right to vote in union elections, to attend and vote at union meetings, and to participate in union deliberations. Members were also given freedom of speech and assembly, the right to vote on increases in dues, the right to sue their union, safeguards against improper disciplinary actions by their union officers, and the right to a copy of their union's collective bargaining agreements. The Labor Accord the years 1930 to 1970 brought on what became known as the Labor Accord, a time that management attempted to work with unions, figuring the cost was too high and unions too powerful to take on. This was like a partnership with management being the senior partner, making decisions on how the company was ran, and the union being a junior partner who made decisions on collective bargaining issues. In the 1970s, management started to believe that the cost of dealing with unions became too high. In the 1980s, the fight was on. Management started fighting, organizing drives, hiring strike breakers, relocating plants outside the United States to avoid recognizing union organizing, refusing to bargain in good faith with unions, reducing the rate of successful union contracts by one-third in the first year. The 1960s and 70s brought on an explosive growth in public sector unionism, the unionizing of government employees. The government granted the right for most of state and federal workers to join unions. These unions had a fairly easy time because politicians had to answer for any anti-union actions, not only with the employees, but their families and friends. Thus, any anti-union actions would cost them votes. They also could not threaten pro-union employees with being fired, replacement, or relocating to other countries. But in the 1980s and the 1990s, they faced a new threat. The state and local government budgets were declining due to lower federal transfer payments and declining tax revenue. Gary discusses the structure of unions, and we will cover this fairly briefly, as most of you are familiar with these concepts, and growth of unions. National unions cover members in several locations, although they may not have members in every state. Some unions use the word international, but this is also inaccurate. By this, they really mean North America and South America. In 2004, Canada had 1.2 million union members in 46 international unions, or 28% of all union members in Canada. 
National and international unions vary in many ways. Many are very small and a few are very large. Some think small unions are ineffective, but this is not true. Local unaffiliated unions are formed on a regional, company-wide, or plant-wide basis and are unaffiliated with the Labor Federation. Union locals and intermediate bodies Locals are the lowest branches of national unions. They may cover a particular plant, geographical area, or conglomerate of several small plants or shops that are too small to form individual locals. The size of locals can vary anywhere from as small as 50 members to several thousand. Intermediate bodies are offices between the national union headquarters and the locals, often divided up by regions, but this will vary by each national. The Labor Federation is a voluntary association. The AFL-CIO is the most well-known federation. It has 56 unions associated with it and 13 million members. The federation coordinates activities of associate unions in organizing, bargaining, and political actions, among many other things. Union Growth and Decline When one looks at union growth and decline, there are two things that one has to look at, the number of members and the density. Density is the percentage of wage and salary workers in unions. Density is an indicator of union strength, how well unions have organized the workforce. Density varies, but overall only 12.5% of wage and salary workers are union members. There is a wide difference in private and public sector density. 7.9% of private workers are in unions, and 36.4% of government workers. No industry or occupation has a density near 50%. Non-members have a density of 8.4% in the private sector and 10.6% in the public sector. Union membership expanded rapidly in the 1930s and through the 1940s, then stabilized and fell sharply through the late 1970s, 1980s, and 1990s. The decline in private sector membership was initially masked by public sector growth, but it appeared when the public sector stabilized in the 1990s. The cause of union growth and decline. Unions gain members. A. They win organizing drives and get their first collective bargaining agreement. B. Where there are already collective agreements, the covered non-members decide to join the unions that represent them. C. Employment fans, unionized firms, and then newly hired workers join unions. Or D. Unionized companies extend collective bargaining agreements to the workers at new operations. Unions lose members when A. Employment declines in unionized firms because of plant closures, the introduction of new production technologies, and transfers of work overseas are to domestic non-union operations. R.B. Workers decide to no longer be represented by their unions and decertify them as bargaining agents, essentially organizing drives in reverse. Research has agreed that there is four reasons for fluctuation in union membership. Structural shifts in the labor force, when employment declines in typical unionized jobs and increases in non-union jobs are reversed, we will see a decrease or increase in membership numbers. Employer opposition. Opposition which reduces union organizing success while increasing organizing cost is now intense and widespread. About 80% of employers hire outside consultants to run campaigns against organizing unions and have their supervisors give anti-union messages to workers. Unions' lack of desire and ability to organize. 
Faith unions are active and successful in organizing. This is understandable given the high cost of organizing. This can be about $2,000 per each new member. Unions are burdened with costs such as conventions, headquarters, as well as meeting halls, bargaining locations, as well as the cost of serving the current members. And the failure of the law of organizing, changes in the law cannot make the membership grow, but they can discourage employers from misconduct during organizing campaigns. Further, tougher penalties for employer misconduct. Unions and labor scholars have suggested many ways to bring revival of unions. Some ideas suggest long-term gains and others suggest faster but shorter-term gains. Gary goes over the common issues in all of the suggestions. One proposal is a new type of union membership who either remains a part of the union after leaving a unit such as on retirement or a change in job. These members would not be participating in collective bargaining but would gain in benefits the unions offer, such as health care insurance, prepaid attorney, consultation on safety at the job site. Another suggestion was that jurisdiction be clarified and better organized to reduce conflicts, that unions covering the same jurisdiction be pressured to merge locals to organize and recruit non-members into becoming members. Another proposal had the same jurisdiction issues, federations to be better organized structurally, lowering dues, merges, and a political plan to vote more pro-labor congressmen and women in and into the White House. Gary listed and discussed the following commonalities that he found in most proposals. Organizing. Some proposals have emphasized the need for better and more organizing. If the loss of membership is the cause for the union's dilemma, then recruiting more members would relieve the problem. Professional staff must work with existing members to organize nearby non-union plants and non-members in their local. Members having a better understanding of working conditions and workers' complaints. They have a greater credibility than paid staff. Not only do they need greater successes in organizing, which is at about 50 to 60 percent wins, but a greater number of organizing members. Right now, if the unions won all the time, it would not cover the current losses, so we must organize a greater number of units. The way unions organize should be expanded to other operations than we have been using, such as being at the locations, stockholder meetings to put pressure on the companies to acknowledge the right of their employees to representation by the union they have chosen. Offering non-majority membership to units that don't want collective bargaining by organizing industries as a whole, thus increasing density, will cause further organizing to be easier as an industry becomes more and more unionized. The remaining company's resistance to unionizing lowers as it is a new standard and to compete for employees, they will need to come closer and closer to what the union companies in their industry are offering their employees. Collective Bargaining Unions must take control of bargaining and not give in to concessions when bargaining. We must ensure that any employee committees do not replace the collective bargaining or allow the employer to bypass the union and violate any area in the collective bargaining agreement. Unions should try to expand the clause in collective bargaining agreements to address the needs of temporary and part-time employees who are not part of the unit. 
such as clauses to turn part-time employees into full-time positions when possible. Political action. Unions must change their current strategy of voting for one candidate over another just to keep the one candidate out of office. An endorsement for a candidate should never be automatic, but rather come with an obligation for that support. They should be willing to earn that endorsement by being willing to actively oppose any laws, regulations, or trade pacts that jeopardize any union jobs. Unions will find their political power magnified by working with others, forming a coalition with clergy, civil rights, and worker rights organizations, student activists, and other such groups. This will, of course, have to take up the causes that these groups represent, too. Of course, the reform of laws applying to workers should remain the number one concern for the unions. But working with coalitions, both the union and the coalitions benefit from working together. Changing the union's mission and structure. First, there should be fewer but larger unions since larger unions tend to be more financially stable and can better afford the professional, specialized staff and services members expect. Smaller locals should be encouraged to merge with other locals to increase their ability to organize and enforce collective agreements, but this should not be forced on a local as it would reduce the membership participation and commitment. Most importantly, the union's mission must be reconsidered in such a way that in increasing its legitimacy, meaning how the public and its members perceive the actions of the union as desirable, preferred, and appropriate. Gary concludes with three options that he believes the labor movement has and why they are good or bad options. The first option is retreat. Union leadership decides to do nothing but maintain the status quo. Unfortunately, private sector loses a million union jobs a year to employment contraction, layoffs, and plant closures. Certification votes, with the union winning about 50%, a result of gaining 20,000 new members each year, while privatizing and contracting out costs a quarter of a million jobs in the public sector each year. Density will fall until after a decade it stabilizes at 5%. All this creates a decline in every activity that unions conduct currently. Political actions, organizing, bargaining, enforcing CBAs, and so on. Rebound. In this scenario, Gary sets here is not too bad, but calls for what many would call extreme measures. The AFL-CIOs realize that they must embrace the idea of joining in political and social worker issues. They must convince all the unions in their federation to give one-third of their budget to organizing drives, but also another one-third to political action. Laws must be reformed to prevent companies from hiring replacement workers. As unions gain both in members and density, the fight becomes easier with companies and eventually the rebound is successful. Renew. Union leadership joins with staff, local leaders, professors, committee activists to review options to renew the labor movement. Everything is on the table. They determine organizing has to be the top union priority and everything that could help to expand the membership. Political activities are a must. Becoming part of the community and helping the community in many ways, including activist support. They support only candidates that are labor-friendly and give no free rides based on party affiliation. 
I hope you enjoyed the summary of this book. Please understand that Gary's book contains so much more information and details. I could not possibly cover everything that he has in his book in a podcast. Please pick up a copy of his book. He has charts and some very good information on density. Gary Chasen is a professor and has written several books regarding unions. This book, Unions in America, is just one of several great books. The next episode I do will be the final in the myth series. We cover some very pertinent issues in this podcast. We will be covering corruption and mafia in the unions, racism in unions, sexism in unions, and immigration. I think it will be a very interesting podcast. Please remember we do have the 800 number. Links to that and the numbers in the show notes and at the uh, website for the podcast. Thank you and have a great week. Thank you, listeners. I appreciate the time it takes to listen to these. Please share this podcast with your friends, family, and anyone that you know that's in a union or is interested in becoming a member of a union. We can be reached at www.laborknowyourrights.com, all one word. Also on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. You can also reach us at laborknowyourrights at gmail.com. Any suggestions on future episodes, questions, ideas, or just you want to say hi or thank you, feel free to contact us there. And to wrap this one up, I'd like to thank our sponsor, the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. <music>